Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Through each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone. And that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We make leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we are encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today we will be hearing from Dr. Barry Creamer. Dr. Creamer has served as president of Criswell College since 2014. After spending a combined 10 years as both a member of the faculty and as the vice president of academic affairs, he holds a BA in English from Baylor University, an MDiv from Criswell College, and a PhD in Humanities from the University of Texas at Arlington. For more than 20 years, Dr. Creamer pastored churches across Texas, and he continues to preach conferences, teach lay audiences, and serve as interim pastor for churches in transition. He has spent over a decade hosting his own podcast, Coffee with Creamer, a program covering relevant issues in ethics, ministry, and worldview. Without further ado, Dr. Barry Creamer. All right, good to have you all here in chapel. We uh, are happy to have our preview day students with us, but also to have our regular students with us. Uh, None of our students are actually regular. It's not quite the right term, but our current students with us, I'll say. Uh, And I mean by that we're superior to regular. That's what I'm getting at. So uh, all that said, I'm going through the book of Psalms right now. And so I'm going to do Psalm 46 today because I did Psalm 45 last week in the church that I was in. And so uh, if you want to join me in reading this passage, it is Psalm 46. You'll be familiar with this one. Uh, It happens to be one that we uh, use more often. Some of the language will be familiar to you. I just want to cover very briefly what it's talking about. The superscript to this psalm fits This second book of the Psalms, it's pretty characteristic of them because it's a psalm of the sons of Korah, the the men who had descended from the Korah of the rebellion probably, but David had put in charge of the worship uh, in the tabernacle and then ultimately through Solomon in the temple and following. They were the ones who wrote many of the Psalms and who led in corporate worship, the congregational worship they would come to. And so it says, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, probably the rhythm or the tune or something like that, that they would sing it to. And then it's just referred to as a song. The one before this, Psalm 45, is referred to as a love song. So there's something about the artistic quality of this that's supposed to uh, draw our attention. So as we come to this psalm, uh, I want to ask you a question before I read the first verse. And we're just going to take the psalm the way it's written. It's in three parts. Each section ends with a little uh, statement that says to us, hey, we have finished this section. We're moving on to the next one. It becomes obvious how the psalm is written. It has a very straightforward message. And if we apply it, as they would have applied it because, you know, you read this psalm corporately, congregationally, and as all the psalms, we're reading them as the people of Israel. We're reading it that way if we're in Israel. We're reading it not just personally, not just opening it in your closet, in your private prayer life and converting it into a personal devotional, but reading it as the people of God who have been chosen by God to represent him to a world that needs him and a world that's going to reject them in the process of coming to him 
and that finally realize their identity in Christ himself as the Messiah who is the head of Israel. And all of that is what we want to understand in our background as we start to read this psalm. So uh, as, before we get to the first verse, I just want to ask you a really quick question, simple question. And uh, those who've been around me very long or taken a philosophy class with me will know the answer to this question right away. Not asking you to answer out loud, so I'm just telling you ahead of time. Just keep it to yourself, okay? But what's the worst thing about your favorite food? This is a simple question. The worst thing about your favorite food, right? So you got to think of your favorite food. Ooh, I love corn on the cob. I mean, it's obvious, right? That's the favorite food. It's everybody's favorite food. Why would it not be your favorite food? It's the only reason we have teeth. Uh, so corn on the cob is what it's all about. So that's my favorite food. Worst thing about your favorite, I don't know what your favorite food is, whatever it is, hopefully you're thinking of it now. And then you're thinking, yeah, well, what's the worst thing about it? There's nothing, there's nothing bad about it. Well, let me give you a sample of what's bad about your favorite food, what the worst thing is about your favorite food. Number one, you're not eating it right now. That's, that's a bad thing, right? And if you did have it, if you were eating it, if all of us had a cob of corn right now, which would be all of us having our favorite food, because really there's no freedom in this. That's your favorite food. If all of us had a cob of corn right now, you know what the worst thing is about having your favorite food? The worst thing about not having your favorite food is not having it, right? So the worst thing about having your favorite food is that you're going to run out of it. That's the whole point of eating it. When you hear the statement, having your cake and eating it too, this is the dilemma that's being described for you, right? It's hard to have your cake if you've eaten it. And what's the point of having the cake if you can't eat it? But as soon as you start eating it, you're declaring the reality that you're not going to have it in a minute. And that's sad because if it's corn on the cob, you need more of it. But even if I could get more of it, even if I could have more cobs of corn than I could possibly desire, the fact that I'm going to get so full that I can't eat any more of it is its own sadness because I want more of the corn on the cob. I have a problem with corn. I'll admit this. It's not, that, that's just, we'll, we'll acknowledge that. But you've got a problem with something because you love something that you eat. So just, just whatever that favorite food is for you, the problem is when you don't have it, you want it. And when you do have it, you know you're not going to have it at some point. And the more you desire it, the more anxiety you have about the fact that you're not going to have it eventually. You say, well, you're, you're painting me into a corner. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not painting you into a, cor a corner. Epicurus is painting you into a corner. Epicurean philosophy, if you ever heard of, you've, you know what an Epicurean is in our words, some kind of fastidious glutton. But in philosophical terms, an Epicurean was a person who acknowledged from the outset the opposite of what we think. It's not just you should go and satisfy yourself with hedonism by getting all the things you can possibly get and, and eating all that you want. It's the opposite. The Epicurean philosophy was to acknowledge that the more you desire things, in order to find your happiness, your contentment, or your satisfaction, the more anxiety you're going to live with in life and the less you're ever going to find the peace, the contentment, the serenity, the happiness, whatever it is that you're actually pursuing. And if you say, well, that's not my ultimate pursuit. Mine's higher than that. Then you, all, you, all, you already have a problem with Paul because Paul is telling us how to obtain 
contentment when we get to Philippians 4 by finding our satisfaction in Christ. And the reason I'm bringing that up to you is because all of us live in a world where no matter where we're putting our hope, no matter where we're putting it, whether in corn on the cob or in conquering all the armies of the world, you know, whatever it is you put your hope in, you're putting it in a world where it's going to be taken away from you, no matter what happens. I've done the funerals for those who've been married for 60 years and loved each other and watched the wife lament over the casket of her husband. The more she loved him, the sadder she is that he's gone. It's just the reality of the world. The more you desire something, the more anxiety it brings to this world because everything in this world dissolves. Everything. It's the nature of the world since the fall. Are you with me so far? We haven't read the psalm, so now let's start reading the psalm. You'll see in the first three verses, he declares the whole content of the psalm. And then in the, in the last eight verses that we'll read, he in two different sections tells us what we're supposed to think about that. So starting in verse 1, and this is, the, this is the message, God is our refuge. God is our strength. He is immediately present when we're in trouble, a very present help in trouble. That's why we don't fear. Why would we fear? In this world, what possible reason would we have for fearing? This is, this is what he describes in verse 2. Though the earth itself gives way, though the mountains are moved, the mountains are this monument, even the word monument is a reference to this. The mountains are this monument of stability and power in the world. And whether you're taking this psalm or the Mosaic psalm that comes much later, the comparison between God and the mountains is not saying, oh, those puny little mountains and God. It's taking the thing that we come to and, and see as the greatest evidence of stability you could possibly have, as a good indication of God's own presence in the world. This is why you would put your high places in high places to worship the gods. That's the kind of strength a mountain should represent. And it says, even though the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. So from the heights to the depths, though the waters of the sea roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at the swelling of the water. So when all of this turbulence is coming into the world, and probably describing things that they had actually experienced in their days in different ways, in minor ways, he's saying when all of those things happen, that's okay, we find our refuge and strength in God. And we realize that God is present even when all of these troubles come to pass. And so we'll take the entire world and say, my favorite thing about the world is that it's here. When it goes away, where do you find hope? And their answer is, well, in our God. He's our refuge. He's our strength. So you can, you can see the message of the psalm just in the first three verses. It's pretty, pretty direct. When everything solid collapses around us, we trust God. That's what we do as Christians. That's what we do as the people of God. We know that we can trust God. So uh, yesterday, my, so yesterday was a weird day for a lot of reasons, but the one that really stood out uh, is the thing that was in the news for you guys. You saw in Nashville the shooting that took place, and I'll, I'm, I'll put this very briefly. But my, that, that school shooting that took place 
uh, was in a school that's right next door to, and they cooperate on a lot of things and do things together that's right next to my grandkids' school. So my grandkids, my, my kids, my son and his wife, uh, so my son and daughter-in-law, they live in Brentwood, which is outside of Nashville right there, and they live right down the street from where the shootings were. So my daughter-in-law was going to the school to pick up my six-year-old uh, who's finishing kindergarten right now, or five-year-old, I don't know how old he is, but he's finishing kindergarten. I love him. I, just, I don't keep up with the dates when he was born, so just back off, okay? <laughs> so, he, so whatever he is, however old he is, I know his name, Bear. He's Bear. Okay, so she was going to pick up Bear, and she's driving through all the, all the police cars and the SWAT team, and they had the school locked down, and now she's trying to figure out where the shooting took place, and you can imagine the anxiety that goes with that, and with my kindergartner, who's already stressed out about other things, and now he's, there's some shooting and there are police in his, in his school building. And when they finally get home and they've got their three kids at home, they're all stressed out because the shooting that's happened. And, it's in an, and this is the thing. They're in a, they moved to that neighborhood in Brentwood, which is a really nice area south of Nashville. They moved there because they had lived in East Nashville, and this would be safer. This would be a better place for them to raise their kids. So they go down, they put their kids in a private school, and they're taking care of them. They're doing everything to provide safety. And instead, they have this thing happen, and all the anxiety that comes with losing that. And then last night when we were talking to them, there were, pol there, not police, there were uh, media helicopters circling overhead in the neighborhood because, you know, you have to get a shot of the school so that you can do your B-roll for the news reports, not thinking about all the nine-year-olds who are crying in their beds because helicopters are circling their homes where their school was just being assaulted. Not that I'm complaining about the media. I'm happy with the work they do. I just take a deep breath. Not going to take it out on everybody. These are my grandkids I'm talking about here. You know, it's, you want to, the whole point here is we have helicopters circling our house all the time. We live in Northeast Dallas. We love our neighborhood, but the reality is they're hunting for people fairly frequently, not far from where we live. It's just part of the reality of what happens in our house. We're not, we're not too stressed out by that. For them having helicopters circling over their house is torment. The, the re, and the reason for that is because they lived in a neighborhood because it was supposed to be safe from that. They're not supposed to have to deal with that. And what we're always confronted with in this world, and you'll see how this plays out in the rest of the psalm, what we're always confronted with in this world is no matter how big a shelter you build, no matter what foundation you put it on, no matter how far removed from everyone else or how circled by the soldiers you are, it all shakes. It all collapses. And so when you start the second section, you see this most profoundly in verse 4. There is in Israel, in Zion, we have this security that no one else has, they say. So in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the middle of her, and she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns, and we'll come back to what the morning dawn refers to in a moment, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. This statement in verse 6 is just so central. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. That's not they're doing two different things. The nations rage, and as a consequence, kingdoms totter. You know, so this nation rages in its power and declares itself Lord over all of these other kingdoms, and the kingdoms wobble because of it. They 
founder and they, their borders are moved and everything shakes over here. So the power of the nations is expressed as they redefine the borders of the world and that's my mountain and I own this coast and you belong to me now. So the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. But he, our God, the God who helps us in the morning, our God gives his voice, and that, and that can be anything. The translation in the ESV is utters his voice. Uh, it can be si- quietly uh, like he does to Elijah on the mountain, or it can be forcefully like he does in some of the Psalms earlier than this when he is declaring his power out loud so that no one could ignore it. It doesn't matter. He just, if he speaks, if he says anything at all, then the earth melts. This is what it describes. So all the, all the nations are quibbling over where they're going to move the lines on this playing field, and then God just melts the field. <laughs> they're like, oh, this is mine. And he says, what, what is yours? It's not even there anymore. What are you even talking about? So that the nations rage and the kingdoms totter and they, they, they make their declarations, but the Lord utters his voice And all the declarations of ownership that the kingdoms had declared are made null and void. You know, the ultimate expression of this is what's being prayed by the church early on in in Acts chapter 4 when the disciples have been released from prison. And in short terms, they're, they're told they can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. So they go back to the church and they say to the church, hey, we've been told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, so let's pray about this. And they open the Psalms, and corporately they pray a Psalm. They pray Psalm 2. They pray part of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the nations rage? Why do they exalt themselves against the Lord's anointed one? That's what they pray in Acts chapter 4, if you go read the, read the prayer. This is what they pray together. And then they explain in their prayer how that applies specifically to Jesus. Even Herod and Pontius Pilate, they raised themselves up against Jesus. And we sort of miss, for some reason, in the way we declare Christianity, we miss this fundamental element of what's being expressed in that prayer and in Psalm 2 about the Lord's anointed one. And and it's partially because we just misunderstand the resurrection as a whole. The point of that prayer and the point of their declaration is that they've been told by the princes of the earth who are exerting their authority and raging against what Christ is doing through his disciples. And they say, you may not preach in his name anymore. And they come to God and they say, you know, the, the, the nations of the earth are raging against us. They're, they're drawing lines around us and putting us in prisons, which, by the way, the Lord will shake the ground and the prison doors will open. And one day they'll realize it doesn't matter whether you're in the prison or out of the prison because the presence of God is everywhere. We'll come to that at the end of the psalm in just a moment. But in this part, as they pray this prayer, what they're acknowledging is that in the whole Christ event is this one great declaration that can't be taken away. In his birth, which overcame Herod's rule, despite the fact that Herod wanted to kill him, he couldn't. And in his death where Pilate is exerting the authority of Rome and saying, well, Rome has more authority, we'll kill him because 
the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem want to kill him? For what reason? Because this is how you eliminate a competitor. This is how you eliminate someone else who has authority. Put them in the ground. That's gotten rid of all the other authorities historically. So you, you bury them underneath the mountain. The mountain doesn't move. And so you have the stability of power with you. But you put this one man in the mountain and put a rock over the face of it and you say, now we're king and you're not. And three days later, he's looking at you and saying, who's, who's the king? Who, who is the king? Because three days later, he rises from the dead. And so while all of the earth is shaking, what the Lord is declaring in his resurrection is not simply, oh, I can help you live forever. What Jesus declares in his resurrection is that the world belonged to him to begin with. There is no mountain who can cover him up. There is no border that can keep him out. He is Lord over all. And so in everything that we're seeing here, we're being reminded that because God is the stream that satisfies us and God is in the midst of his people, then it doesn't matter when the nations rage or the kingdoms totter because when he utters his voice, the nations, the the earth itself melts. And so we declare instead, the Lord of hosts Yahweh Sabaoth, you know, the Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our protector. And so in the third section, when we see the Lord doing this, doing this again, comparing those things that are destroyed over time with his eternal presence, we're told this way, verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease To the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear and he burns the chariot with fire. This, all those statements are ironic in one sense because it's saying, I want you to come and see what the Lord brings as destruction in the world. And what the Lord brings as destruction in the world is the destruction of all the things that bring destruction into the world, right? So there's an irony in it where it's saying, come watch the Lord fight this war against war so that there's no more war. But none of this is saying he doesn't do that by bringing judgment into the world. He's bringing judgment and taking evil out of the world in the process. We know this from other passages. The point here is that when he brings this destruction so that all the nations bow before him. So nation, so in comparison to what we read a moment ago, the, the nations of the earth are, are raging, but the Lord utters his voice and the world melts. In that same way, the nations are battling and they're, they're fighting their wars and they're winning their wars. And then the Lord shows up and he destroys war itself. His, his power is not to compete with the other nations. His power is over the field in which they compete. His, he is Lord of all. That's, how, that's what we're learning about the Lord in this psalm. We turn to him because everything else shakes. So it says in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth, just as Moses stood still before the Red Sea with the people of Israel when the Egyptians were pursuing them and raging against the people of God. And he says, stand still and see the deliverance of our God. In that same way, even when Jesus is comforting the disciples after his resurrection and when he appears to them, in all of those ways, we're hearing him say, Follow, trust me, be, just be still. They can rage, you trust me. 
I have the answer. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations who are warring for their own power. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the final declaration, the Lord of hosts is with us. That is with us statement is, you know, it's just, I mean, and, and it, this is not unusual. It's not an unusual phrase, Imanu, Emmanuel, you know, the thing we say about the name of Jesus. There's a reason that this is used. The Lord of hosts is with us. Why are we saying the Lord of hosts is with us? Because the declarations here are about when everything we thought was going to protect us doesn't. When the mountains collapse, when the earth shakes, when the sea rages, when the nations are battling against us, when everything we had hoped would be the source of our power and security is giving up, is disappearing, is dissolving, is shaking, the Lord says, I'm still here. I am still with you. This is why when Jesus takes exactly the same image into the New Testament and speaks to people at the very beginning of his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount, this is why he's saying, so everyone who hears these words of mine, the things that teach you about me, and does them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Not because a rock is forever, but because his words are forever, because our trust in him is eternal. And what happened? Remember what we read at the beginning of the psalm? I mean, all the nations are raging, the waters are raging, the mountains are collapsing, they're being thrown into the sea, so the land is failing, the water is rising, the floods are coming, and what does he say? The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And he gives the contrast with the man who built his house on the sand that collapses, and that's the point here. That no matter what you try to put your trust in in this world, in the psalm, it's just as clear as it can possibly be. No matter what else you put your trust in in the world, whether it is a, a pension fund or a job or a career or a level of intelligence that you have or the ability to conquer all of your enemies or if it is in a person or a relationship or whatever you put it in, everything in the world, good, bad, and indifferent, collapses. The only thing that does, the only thing you can put your hope in in this world that where that doesn't happen is when instead of coming to the kings who would say, let's put Jesus in the tomb so that we can get rid of him, instead of putting your trust in them, whether it's the stuff that comes out as food or relationships or power or fame or career or whatever it is that you are going to pursue, if instead you put your hope in Christ, he's the one who having risen three days later made the declaration that he is Lord and no one else. So that we say, even when my food runs out, the Lord is with us and he is our refuge. That even when all of our resources run out, the Lord is with us and he is our refuge. So that even when we come to the end of our days, to the end of our lives, we say, the Lord is with us and he is our refuge. That never shakes. And so that's where we put our hope. My prayer for you is, as you know, students here at Criswell, I hope you've heard this a thousand times in your classroom, a thousand times since you've been here. To the preview day students who are here, I am saying to you, if you want to give your life and career away to something that will actually endure forever, then I encourage you to come and find out what it means to serve Christ in sincerity with everything you have. Because anything else you give your life to is going to shake and crumble and fall. But Christ is with us, and he is our refuge. 
Father, I thank you for that being true and pray that you would help us to be faithful servants to you, to give away our lives, our careers, our hopes, our future, our everything to you. We know that you make everything else we do meaningful to begin with, but you endure forever. And in that, we can place our hope and find peace. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for the time. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell Chapel podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.